Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Thank you. You may be seated. With all the good music this morning, and especially special music, I still don't know how you do that. I've dabbled at playing the guitar and struggled to get in in between the frets. I don't know how it works without frets. How do you know how to be in the right spot? Doesn't make sense to me, but... We move into chapter 9 this morning. We probably could just go and not have a message because we've already worshipped enough, right? But I'm not going to do that because this is my time. We, we move into uh, chapter 9 of the book of Romans this morning. And you know that typically I do logical chunks. Most often you can recognize a chunk as a paragraph in the way it's outlined in your text. Brian said to me this morning in our meeting, he said, well, that's a lot of verses. Yeah, it is, because I couldn't really separate chapter 9. It all needed to be said together, with the exception of the last two verses. So we're, we're going to do one message that covers the majority of chapter 9 this morning. And so I don't have any questions for you this morning, because we're going to cover so much territory. But if you have a question throw something at me or say something or just stand up, however you want to get my attention, I'll be happy to stop. But I'm not going to be asking you um, questions like I often do. When we last uh, were in the book of Romans last week, we saw that we are more than conquerors, which doesn't mean that we're, we'll be free from conflict. In fact, it means the opposite, right? God will always be with us and protect us, but your life is not going to be easy. Jesus told us that. Those preachers that are going around the world and telling you today that life is going to be easy when you become a Christian, he's got a wonderful plan for your life, and it includes you getting really rich, send me $25. And it means you're going to be really healthy, send me $25. Those guys, they're not preaching scripture. They're preaching something else. Jesus said, no, your life is not going to be that good in the here and now, but it'll be great for eternity. That's what Paul has been talking about in the chapters we've just been going over. This morning we're going to tackle this really long section in chapter 9 because I think it really is the only way that we can do it properly. So hopefully you don't have a roast in the oven, or if you do, you put extra water in there, or the timer will go off and shut it off or something, or just... It'll be burnt sacrifice, and that's okay. That's a biblical thing. So let's get started in Romans chapter 9, verses 1, uh, 1 through 29. I typically do a verse at a time. I'm going to do several chunks because we need to cover a lot of territory. And you need to see what Paul's saying here together. So chapter 9, by the way, the title of my message this morning is Why Do It? Why do it? Not why you do it. Why does God do it? Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accused 
I'm sorry, accursed, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul ended Romans 8. It's almost like he's overwhelmed by, by God's powerful and protecting love and the reality that the most of his kinsmen, the Jews, will never know Jesus. Paul's in anguish over the reality that his, his family, the Jews, his ethnic grouping, the majority will never know Jesus. They will never know the totality of God's love. Paul's broken in anguish over the failure of the majority of Jews to come to Jesus. Look at this last verse here. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Paul says, look, I'd gladly give up my salvation if it meant my, my Jewish brothers would be saved. Now, Paul knows this is a theological impossibility. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, it hurts me so bad, I'd be willing to give it up if I could so that they were saved. That's the heart of, a, of an evangelist. That's the heart of a true Christian. He's willing to give up his eternity so that others, his family, who should know better but don't, would see Jesus. Paul knows that it's impossible. It's impossible and I don't think he's trying to, to begin any kind of theological doctrine here. I think he's just letting us know, listen, I want them to be saved. It hurts me that they're not. Incidentally, this... Paul's not the first guy to do this. Paul's not the first one to say something like this. As we read through the scriptures each year, every year we come through a couple of occasions where Moses does it, right? Well, God, just kill me and, and protect them. Let me take the punishment. It looks like she's cold. Sometimes God will say to Moses, I'm just going to kill all of them, and you can start over. Moses said, no, 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 no. Let's, let's not do it that way. Again, expressing his heart for his fellow kinsmen. Are we willing to trade ourselves? Do we think enough of those that are around us? And do we think enough of those that need to know who Jesus is that we would, in effect, be willing to trade ourselves for them? Paul goes on in verse 4, they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and worship, and promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is the God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul goes on to speak about all the blessings God has given Israel. Israel was God's chosen people, not because they were the biggest, not because they were the best. They were insignificant. In fact, they weren't even really a people yet, right, when God called them. God gave Israel the written word of God we call the Old Testament. That included the law, the way to worship, and the way to worship in the temple. God said, this is how you're to live with each other. This is how you're to live with people outside of Israel. This is how you're to worship me. And then he gave them the tabernacle and eventually the temple. This is how you worship me. 
I'll come down and live in the temple where you can interface with me directly. God gave them the promises of the Old Testament. God also gave, the, gave to Israel the patriarchs. These, these men that, that followed God most of the time, sometimes not, and who, through whom God said, look, through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob, I will bring my people. And through them will come a blessing for the entire world. That blessing, of course, is Jesus Christ. God gave Israel all the advantages so they could interface with him. He was telling them who was coming how to worship him, how to interface with people, and Israel missed it. But that wasn't lost on Paul. Look what he says next in verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. And not all, are, not all the children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham, because there is offspring, but through Isaac through, shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a, a son. Paul recognized that Israel had been given all these advantages including the word of God, and he says, look, it's not like the word of God failed. It did exactly what I wanted it to do. Paul's beginning to develop the reality that God's election is what is at work in salvation and not our heritage, not our ethnicity, not any other external factor. There's nothing about salvation that is about us. It's all about God. God's word in verse 6 is a reference to the Old Testament that which Paul talked about in the previous section. God gave the law and the temple worship in the Old Testament. And it didn't fail to do what it was given to do. Israel didn't reject Jesus because the Old Testament failed Israel. Paul then speaks about Abraham's sons. Abraham had how many sons? Many sons. Many. <laughs> I, I could start singing the song. <laughs> you almost got me. He had eight sons. He had Ishmael, Isaac, and then he had six more sons by Keturah. Not all of his sons became the son of promise, the progenitor of who Jesus would become, right? Ishmael became the leader of, 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 of 12 Arab tribes. The sons of Keturah became the leaders of eight more Arab tribes running around the, uh, the Arabian desert. Not all of Abraham's son were in the line of, uh, of salvation. The Jews were the chosen people of God. Ancestry and pedigree played no role in God's choosing. God chose Abraham, and then he chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Then he chose Jacob, but not Esau. Esau was actually the oldest. And by their custom, it should have been Esau. But that's not what uh, God's plan was. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born 
uh, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. Notice what Paul says here. Before Jacob and Esau were born, before they could do anything good or bad, God had already decided who would be in his line for Jesus. God told Rebekah, Isaac's wife, that the older would serve the younger. The opposite of covenant or conventional cultural norms. Paul says that God did that so that the purpose of election could continue. I love the way he phrases that. God did these things to keep his plan going. By the way, that's the purpose that Paul talked about way back in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's all about his purpose. Remember when we were going through this passage a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 8? I think we often use this verse kind of out of context. You get a flat tire on, your, on the side of the road and your wife says to you, well, you all things work together for good. As you're dripping sweat and dirty and it's no comfort. Don't do that. It's no comfort when, when something like that happens. Or you, you, you stub your toe and you're limping around and your husband says, well, all things work together for good. That's no comfort. It still hurts. As we looked at this text, as we looked at the context of it, all things that work together for good are the entirety of God's plan, creation, failure by Adam, all of the entropy and sin that happened until recreation. God's purpose is bringing us to that end where we are with him for eternity in a sinless, painless, perfect world. And I'll prove that coming up in the passage that we're looking at. God has a plan flowing throughout all time. That's his purpose. You know, in, in seminary we would have debates about whether God has one decree or makes multiple decrees. And I've always argued on the side of God making one decree. He's never had to change his plan ever. He's never had to add to it or remove from it. He made one decree that brings from the beginning to the end. It's all part of his plan. Only somebody that's sovereign and totally omniscient and omnipotent could do that. That's the God that we serve. Now look again at verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. This statement is called poetic comparison. It's not an absolute declaration from God that he, he hates Jacob, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Esau. That's not what he's saying. This is a, compar a comparison. Let me, let me illustrate this. Look at Luke chapter uh, 14, verse 26. Is, this is what Jesus is saying. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even though his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Was Jesus saying to the would-be disciple, you have to hate everybody in the world to be my disciple? That sounds kind of contraintuitive, right? It sounds kind of like that wouldn't be really following who Jesus is. Of course, Jesus is not saying you have to hate your mother and and your father and, and the rest of your family. It's a comparison. You have to love him so much that in comparison, it's like you hate them. You don't hate them. You still love them. You just love Jesus that much more. So when, when we go back to verse 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Jacob is the one that he's chosen for the line to go through. Jacob is the one he's focusing on. What happened to Esau? He became the leader of a great people. He had lots of territory. Did God hate him? If God truly hated him, where would he be? Dead, right. Exactly. Notice that this declaration was made before they were born. So you could say that God looked into the future and saw what they would do. But the point of what Paul is saying here, look, it has nothing to do with what you do. Now, turn that around to you. Why did God save you? It's not because you're so good looking. Some of you are. Some of you aren't. I'll let you figure out which is which. I'm in the art category. I got it. Some of you will do great and mighty things. Some of you not so much. It has nothing to do with what you do or who you are. It has to do with his purpose. He called you to be his child, and then he orchestrated history to bring you to that point where you would confess him. He orchestrated everybody around you at the right time. Robert and I are praying for our friend Steve. Not this Steve. We pray for you too, but... And you know that you know the story about about Steve. He's he's an avowed uh, agnostic. He he sat at our living or dining room table. Linda and I told us, look, man created God. God didn't create man. This was the day before going into major surgery, and I was trying to make sure that he knew who Jesus was, and uh, he just rejects that. But we're praying for him. We're going after trying to see him come to know Jesus. So maybe God is using us, and maybe God has somebody else in mind to, you know, the, how, uh, how Greg Kokel and, uh, and the others talk about being harvesters and others being uh, farmers, planters and farmers. Maybe I'm a planter and farmer, and somebody else will become and be a harvester with Steve. I don't know. I can't wait for the day that that happens. But we continue to pray for him. God has done that for everybody, every believer in history. You know, I'm not, I, I kind of I like genealogies, but what I'd really like to see is a spiritual family tree. I want to know who led Uncle Bernie to the Lord. Well, I, I do know who led him to the Lord. I want to know who led him to the Lord. Well, I know that part too, but after that, I don't know. You know, 200 years ago, I don't know who those people were. I want to know. I want to see how my spiritual ancestry goes back to Jesus. That will be the greatest family tree ever. And you all have one too. There might be a place where they, they come together. 
But maybe, maybe your family tree goes through Peter. Maybe mine goes through James. I don't know. I want to know that. And I hope, I hope we can figure that out in heaven. That'll be so cool. But God has orchestrated all of that through history to bring you to the point of salvation at the time that the Holy Spirit was ready for you to believe. Look what Paul says in Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Meganeo, by no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Shall, what shall we say there? Is there injustice on God's part? Absolutely not, by no means. May it never be. That's the what we've seen in the past. Meganeo. God has the right to judge and to save whom he wants to. He alone has the right. He doesn't need to justify that to you. I want him to. But he doesn't owe me that. He doesn't have to tell me who he's going to save and who he's not going to save. Think about what this section says about the unregenerate mind. The unregenerate mind does not like when God judges. But they don't like it when he saves either. The unregenerate mind doesn't like it when God saves someone, and he doesn't like it when, they, when he judges someone. You can learn from that that they just don't like God. Because yet their heart is not in tune to him. There may be a time in their future where it will be. We don't know. But at that point, they don't. The unregenerate mind doesn't like it when God does things. Especially when it's done for God's purpose and not man's. If God judged the ones that man wanted to be judged, there would be no way for people to be judged. There'd be no way for more people to be judged because if, if we did it by our criteria, we'd all be done. Seems true for salvation. Doesn't conform to God's plan when it's done man's way. The way we think about things is not the way God thinks about, or thought about things when he put the plan together. Verse 16, so when it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and in hardness whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? Who can resist? Well, I guess I went to one too many verses, sorry. God's plan does not depend on human will or human effort. God's plan doesn't depend on you for anything. I was uh, reading a, a uh, journal article last week, and the, the author was lamenting that we don't have as many missionaries today because Jesus is not going to, this is his words, not mine, Jesus is not going to return until the last person that needs to be saved is saved, and we need to get out there and, and hasten that. That's about the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Because what God does doesn't depend on you or anybody else. 
You can't speed up the return of Jesus by saving people. First of all, you can't save anybody. And nobody's going to come to know Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's all in His time, not your time. God's plan doesn't depend on your will or effort. It's all about God. Paul uses the Egyptian Pharaoh as an example. And just about every year when we go through the, the Scriptures, we talk about this. How could God logically harden Pharaoh's heart and then kill him <coughs> excuse me for the hard heart Paul says that God raised up Pharaoh so that he could show his power and God's name might be proclaimed God didn't cause Pharaoh to sin God used Pharaoh's propensity to sin and used his actual sin to further the development of the people called Hebrews that grew up in Goshen and became a mighty people that he was ultimately afraid of. Why? Because the Hebrews needed to know who God was. God had chosen them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, the, the tribes of Israel. But in Egypt, in Goshen, they were just a collection of tribes that didn't know Yahweh. <coughs> they didn't know who he was. They didn't know what he could do. And so he needed to show them. And so he attacked all the religious figures of, of Egypt in the ten plagues. Every plague addresses a different religious figure in, in Egypt. Until very last thing, the firstborn were gone. The Hebrews needed to know who God was. They needed to know who was taking them out of Egypt. They needed to know his love and mercy, but they also needed to know his justice. Throughout the wilderness wandering, we have several occasions where they saw firsthand the justice of God. My favorite is when God DRT'd them. Two guys. Nadab and Abihu. Aaron's sons priest following in the footsteps of their dad, the high priest. And they decided one day they were just going to have their own incense fire time. And so they got their censers out, and they filled them up with the, with the special formula of incense that I just have to imagine smells really good. Our backyard neighbors have a smoker, and when they're doing that, it just drives me cuckoo. So I can just imagine there probably wasn't pork in it, but there was something in it that made it smell really good. And God said, look, I told you not to do that. You did it. Boom. DRT. Dead right there. And two of Aaron's sons were dead because they failed to do what God had said. They needed, Israel needed to see God's justice. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? It's one of the most profound questions in all of Scripture. If God raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his power, how can he hold Pharaoh accountable for his actions? If no one can resist the power of God, how are we then guilty in ourselves? This is indeed a difficult question, one that we've tried to tackle before. Once Adam sinned and plunged the universe into that sinful state, 
every descendant of Adam, that's all of us, everybody in the world, everywhere, of all time, was flowing in the same river of judgment. God sentenced all to death as a result of their sins. You are not dying because of Adam's sins. You sinned yourself. you got your own sins to deal with. God sentenced us all to death. We know that we all sin. It's not just the sin of Adam. It's our own sin, sins that send us down that river. But, but before all this began, before God created, before God created the, the Garden of Eden and put Adam and then Eve in it, He had chosen Jesus to die. He had chosen you to be saved. So he knew what was going to happen. He planned for what was going to happen. But God still has the right to judge us all because we have all sinned. Paul made that very clear in several verses earlier in Romans. The fact that our sins fit into God's plan doesn't make it immoral for God to judge. Let me ask you a question. Does the fact that Lee County operates and owns and operates a jail make you guilty of committing crimes? No. We plan for you to commit crimes, and so we have space to lock you up. That does not make you, make me, the state, responsible for your sin. That makes you responsible for your sin. God planned for you to sin. That doesn't make him the author of your sin. God's planning for us to sin all along. There's a reason. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? What molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use. When you read dishonorable use, think bedpan. If I'm a lump of clay and I got a right to say, hey, Potter, I don't want to be a bedpan. I'd much rather be a beautiful vase that people stick nice, lovely flowers. The clay doesn't get to determine that. The potter does. God is the potter. He made you. He gets to make you for what he wants you to be. Who do we think we are that we can answer back to God? God has the right to take a piece of clay and make, make some art or make a bedpan out of it. That's you and me. God has a complete and total sovereignty over the universe. He can do what he wants as he maintains the universe. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, this is the critical verse in this whole passage, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is the central passage or part of this theme of this pericope. What if, one of Harper's favorite leading questions, what if? What if God 
wanted to show his mercy and his grace, his justice, and so forth. Paul saying, listen, this is why God did all of this. If we go back to the context we saw in, in chapter 8, verse 28, the context of the entirety of his creation, what if it's so God can show us all those different sides of him? God's desiring to show his wrath and make known his power was very patient with the very people not chosen by him for salvation. God has been incredibly patient throughout creation. Whatever number you believe that is, I think it's somewhere around six or 7,000 years. Whatever, however long that period of time is, from creation till now, God has been very patient with those that have rejected him, starting with the very first one he, re he uh, created. Why does he do that? So out of that group, he can save some, and so that everybody will know his mercy, his grace, his justice, and his holiness, and his righteousness. God has a plan that he developed before, the, before creation that has many stages in it. From our vantage point, God is very patient in seeing his plan progress through these stages. Of course, from God's vantage point, he's outside in time and space, so God doesn't really need patience. We can't really wrap our head around how does it work not being in time and space, but God is not limited by time. God is always present. He's never past, never future. Always present. He has no past. He has no future. He's just, he's just God. So for him, patience is different concept than for us. Look closely at verse 23 again. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God has been patient with the world's sinners, including those he, which includes, which is those he did not choose, to make known the riches of his glory to those he has mercy on. That's those he did choose. The ones that he has mercy on are the one he chose for eternal life. He's chosen to make known to us the riches of his glory. That will be eternity with him. All of the great wonders that we have to look forward to. I think it'll just be, I'd be satisfied to be in the, his presence and not have pain. Most of us are probably in that. Probably the only one here that doesn't have pain is Harper. Right? The rest of us are hurting. You ought to hear it when the elders get out, get up in there after we're done in the meeting. That's just standing up. I mean, no, I ain't lying. God has chosen to have mercy on some, and those he has given a glimpse of his glory. Now stick with me here. This is very important. I think Paul articulates here why he created the world in which sin and evil are possible. I believe Paul tells us that God created the Garden of Eden with two trees and gave Adam the free will to choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil after being told not to. Why? So that he can demonstrate all the riches of who he is. 
His justice and His grace. His holiness and His mercy. If, we, if Adam never sinned, if the world never sinned, we would not know justice. We would not know mercy. We would not know grace. All of those are important things. Grace is named after one of the most important things in the world. God's grace. God gives us grace. You wouldn't know that if you never sinned. Hey, that's what Paul's telling us here. I know I've talked about this topic a lot over the years. I think God created with the potential of sin so that we'd know more about him and his love than if Adam never sinned. I have a much fuller, bigger picture of who God is because I know God is just and merciful, holy and gracious, loving. I wouldn't know any of that if I hadn't sinned, if Adam hadn't sinned. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Look at the last phrase of verse 23. Which he prepared beforehand for glory. He chose us to show mercy on those that he chose to show mercy on. And that's eternity. That's entry into eternity with him. Adam's sin gives you the possibility of being in eternity with God. Verse 24. Even whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. God's plan includes both Jews and Gentiles from the very beginning. The church, by and large, over the last thousand years has gotten this wrong. A lot of people in the church think that we're the replacement of Israel. Israel messed it up, and so God said, get out of here, and I'm just going to deal with the church. That's not the way it works. God's chosen people, the Jews, are still his chosen people. And in the tribulation, he will again rectify his position with them. Or I should say their position with him. And then they'll go into the millennial kingdom where he's sitting on the throne, where Jesus is sitting on the throne of David, ruling the world from Jerusalem, where they're the first among equals in the world. Paul is highlighting a theological problem that many in the church have had. That they didn't think the church would ever be here. That it was just Israel. And then Israel failed and then the church had to take over. That the church is God's plan B. No, God only has a plan A. He doesn't need a plan B. He doesn't even need a plan A.1. He just has plan A. And that always included Jesus dying on the cross. That always included putting Israel on the shelf. That always included the tribulation. Always included the millennial kingdom. All of that is part of the plan. You know, Hosea, in the Old Testament, God said that it's always been part of the plan that there would be some from the Jews and some from the Gentiles. Paul illustrated previously the Jewish religious system was not a failure. It was part of God's patient plan to demonstrate who he is. Now, Paul then goes on to quote Isaiah. 
And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. How that had to hurt Isaiah to say. He continues on, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as Isaiah predicted. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would, ha we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Not all, not all of Israel will be saved. Some will go into eternity not knowing God. Part of his ethnic cho chosen people, but not part of his spiritual people. Paul used Hosea to show that God chose some Gentiles along with some Jews for mercy. He then uses Isaiah to show that God chooses some Jews and some Gentiles for judgment. It has nothing to do with ethnicity or pedigree. It's all about God's plan to show his power and his character. It's not about what you may or may not do. It's about God's plan. It's always about God's plan. Oops. I know we've moved rather quickly through the majority of this chapter this morning. We, and we need to probably go back and spend a little more time on some specific points. But we needed to get the overarching understanding of the entire context. I think the main theme that Paul is developing here is that something... That scripture ultimately points to something that we need to see. When we look at the flow of Scripture, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's true. No matter what your, what your timetable is for that, Scripture clearly tells us God created. When we look at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, what do we have? We have a recreation of heaven and earth. God created first and allowed sin and pain and discomfort and all the entropy that is now in our, in our universe. And at some point, at the end of the book, <coughs> I read the back of the book and we win. At the end of the book, God recreates and we have a new heaven and a new earth. And that new heaven and new earth knows what? That God is just. That God is holy. God is righteous. And we're there because God also loves and has mercy and grace. That's the picture of the, of the entirety of Scripture. And Paul says, listen, that's why he wrote it. That's why he did it. That's why he's, he's given us what he's given us. The character and nature of God are on display. Through the pages of Scripture, God has revealed to the world who He is and what He's like. Everything He did was part of His plan to reveal Himself to us. First to the Jews, and then to the church. Those chosen for punishment would know they violated His character. Ultimately, everybody really knows they've sinned. Unless you have a psychological disorder, and then I still think, even a psychopath, I think, still knows he sinned. 
The sociopath still knows he's just able to suppress it, like Paul says in Romans 1.18. Those chosen for mercy, because of what God has revealed throughout creation, those chosen for mercy will know all about God, or more about God. I don't think we have the capacity to know all about God. Those chosen for mercy will know more as they go into eternity and will be able to worship him with a fuller sense because they know his justice and holiness and righteousness and mercy and grace and his love. So what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power had endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's Adam and his ilk. That's all of us, right? God had patience on us. In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. God chose you for a reason. And it ain't you. It's him. It's all about him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this picture of, of who you are and what you've called us to do. How you've called us to eternal life. Lord, you didn't tell us who you called and who you didn't call. And so we ask for our, our friends and neighbors and our families and, and those around us that need to know you. Let us be witnesses to them. Lord, let us even be the harvester, not just the farmer. But at least let us be the farmer and, and teach them about who you are. Give them that witness. It all belongs to you anyway. Thank you, Father. We love you. And we want to serve you in Jesus' name. Thank you for watching or listening to this teaching on demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. Please consider sending us an email at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com to let us know how this teaching may have helped you. Please also consider joining us in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church, located at 10251 Metro Parkway, Suite 116, Fort Myers, Florida, just south of the intersection of Metro and Colonial Boulevard. Sunday school begins at 9 and worship service at 10 a.m. We look forward to seeing you in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church.